Good morning, CBF. Thank you, Jonathan, for reading the key passage for today. Thanking God for every opportunity He allows us to listen to His word. Last week from Sujay, we heard about covenants God made through various generations. One of the fundamental questions we answered was, can God be trusted? We emphatically answered that, yes, He can be. Moving forward today, we will explore key themes from the book of Lamentation. Here we see the painting, painting of Jeremiah lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem by a Dutch painter Rembrandt. He lived during the 17th century. If you look at the picture closely, we can see that Jeremiah is grieving over the destruction while leaning heavily on the scripture, while he is overlooking the destruction. This is a theme we repeatedly see in the book of Lamentation. That is, he lamenting over destruction while relying heavily on the scripture and seeing the hand of God above everything. Before we get into the content of the book, let's try to understand the context. While the author of Lamentation remains nameless within the book, there is strong evidence from both inside and outside the text pointing to Jeremiah as the author. Both Jewish and Christian tradition ascribe Jeremiah as the author. The book's original name in Hebrew, Eka, can be translated as alas or how, giving the sense of weeping or lamenting over some sad event. The book gives enough context on when and where it was written. When we look at the beginning of Lamentation, the first verse of the book says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. The city in question was none other than Jerusalem. Jeremiah walked through the streets and allies of holy city and saw nothing but pain, suffering and destruction in the wake of the Babylonian invasion in 586 BC. Lamentation teaches us that disobedience to the Lord results in immense suffering and distress, but it also offers a biblical view on how we can respond to God in times of grief and sorrow. Coming to the structure of the book, Lamentation is a skillfully structured book of five separate poems. The structure's most striking feature is the use of acrostic or alphabetic arrangement, in which the following lines of poem begin with the consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The acrostic used in Lamentations are not apparent in English translation. Each poem is complete and independent of the poems before or after it, yet all share a common theme of sorrow over Jerusalem's fall, though from different perspectives. Sometimes the grief is individual, sometimes it is an expression of, of a national grief. But a funeral mood was communicated to all those who heard it. Now coming to the each chapters, if you look at a summary of it, this is how it looks like. In chapter 1, Jeremiah mourns for Jerusalem and Judea as it lays in ruin by the raid and destruction of Babylon. Chapter 1 verse 1 as we read, how lonely sits a city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. In chapter 2, it describes the anger of the Lord that brought the judgment on, upon the wicked land. The emphasis is clear that the Lord is the source of, the, of this disaster. Chapter 2 verse 3 says about that, the Lord has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of enemy. In chapter 3, we see Jeremiah his, expressing his troubled spirit and express, suffering in the gloom. 
he too is afflicted as his homeland homeland has been pillaged on the other hand he reminds us that god is faithful and will restore and bring his purpose to pass as we read chapter 3 verse 22 we are reminded that the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercy never come to an end we'll come to that more at a later time in chapter 4 we read that god has brought justice and ruled mightily during this siege the city of jerusalem has suffered incredibly starvation was so bad and widespread that israelites resorted to eating their children the nation was warned about their sin and disobedience and penalty of the coming judgment in of god in verse 11 of chapter 4 we read that god gave full vent to his wrath he poured out his hot anger and in final and finally in chapter 5 we see more of a prayer than a lament though its content focuses on the pitiful condition of judah because of jerusalem's fall jeremiah's prayer on behalf of his people contained two petitions first that god would remember the plight of his people we read that from uh, verse 1 to 18 in chapter 5 and secondly that he would restore them to their covenant blessings Ch- uh, chapter 5 19 to 22 now coming to the content the first theme we see in the book of uh, book is lamentation over a sorrow in the first verse of lamentation jeremiah describes present condition and its humiliating descent from fullness to emptiness prominence to widowhood ruling to being ruled israel's national mourning is expressed vividly by the author in ancient times a capital city was a safe place to flee in times of war jerusalem was a strategic site a fortified city surrounded by hills with water source within its wall so it was physically well protected and provided nourishment for all its inhabitants the once thriving nation's commercial and religious center was now devastated and largely deserted a formerly a princess jerusalem was now compared to a widow bereaved of husband and children one of life's most painful experiences to be deserted or betrayed in time of need by those we count as friends Judah had frequently put her trust in other nations rather than in the Lord. Judah had not listened to the true prophet's warning and now was suffering the consequence of misplaced confidence. Egypt's promise of help had proved to be undependable and Judah's long-term enemy Edom joined in the plunder of the fallen city. Verse 5 of cha- verse 5 of chapter 1 clarifies that it was the Lord who brought the grief of on Judah as punishment for its sin. to the spiritual affliction was added the physical distress of hunger the inhabitants of jerusalem were forced to forced to give up their prized possessions including their children who were eaten or sold as slaves to procure food jerusalem is compared to a desperately sick or needy person with an outstretched hand pleading for help but there is no one to comfort or console because the lord had ordered its destruction Jerusalem's neighbors who should have been sympathetic but they rejoiced in the spectacle of its ruin second chapter greatly focuses on the terrible destruction that had overtaken Jerusalem it places again greater emphasis on god as the source of the disaster now coming to chapter 2 verse 14 jeremiah says that the false prophet had a significant role in the plight they are in right now during this time false prophecy was an all time high 
in the all-time all high in the entire history of Israel. Book of Jeremiah mentioned at least four false prophets more than any other book in the Bible. These false prophets were soothsayers, giving the people false and empty assurance of Jerusalem's security. Their words were false and worthless. If you examine the theology of these false prophets, it also contained an element of truth that God will protect them. But it had a terrible flaw in that. They ignored the fact that God's blessings promised were based on the people's obedience, which required worship of God alone and moral integrity. If the false prophets had exposed the people's sin and warned them of their consequences, the calamity could have been avoided. Jeremiah in chapter 23 strongly warns against such false prophets. In chapter 23 of verse 28 and 29 says, But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain? declares the Lord. Is it not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Words of false prophets are like a useless straw, and he contrasts it with grain. God's word is like a fire, and hammer which penetrate, is penetrating, purifying, and powerful. It does not lull people in their sin, but instead crushes the heart to bring repentance. Judah, listening and heeding to false prophecy, ended up with severe judgment. It gives a solemn reminder for our responsibility to warn and our accountability if we keep silent or give false hope. Now, here are some of the truths we can learn from this, this section. First, God's discipline is inevitable. God, God's discipline is inevitable because Judah has been disciplined now thoroughly by God. It wasn't like something they have seen in the past where they went through temporary judgment, restoration, and returned to sin again. The things that they held most dear to them were demolished. The land, the temple, and their prosperity. They were exiled from their land. One of the curses that was pronounced in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 on, onwards for their disobedience. Temple was considered the symbol of protection, and it was destroyed. Finally, the people in Jerusalem enjoyed prosperity because God has blessed them. Now, the poverty was so severe that they had to turn to cannibalism for satisfying their hunger. This was also a curse pronounced in Deuteronomy 28 verse 53, where it says, You shall eat the fruit of your womb and the flesh of your sons and, sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. Even though they have seen the judgment happening to Northern Kingdom about 150 years before this, they haven't taken warning from that. Judah has taken God's compassion, love, and long-suffering for granted. It can happen to us as well. We often tend to minimize that God is just and holy. But we need to be mindful that God is as loving as he is holy and just. That means he will not let us go unpunished for our sins. God disciplining us is a strange paradox for many of us because we are unable to grip with that truth, God disciplining, disciplining us when it comes to our own life. We try to rationalize such instances with God's love for us to struggle with the confusion and whether God is really disciplining us or not. Let's look at some of the characteristics of God's discipline. First, it is for a time. God's discipline is for a time. Humanly speaking, Judah and his people have gone through the most devastating experience in their life. 
there is nothing around them that is pleasant and no hope for them in future to look forward to from a human point perspective but after the second exile of judah god through jeremiah has encouraged people in exile in jeremiah 29 verse 11 that for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you not and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future god's promise to them was a hopeful end rather than a quick or immediate deliverance god has given an explicit promise to the exile that after 70 years they will be restored sometimes we may experience pain and suffering that may seem unbearable for that moment but when we pause and realize that it is for a season that god is disciplining us the perspective about what we are going through changes in psalms 30 verse 5 david says for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes with the morning this verse tells us that god's anger is for a moment when we go through that he will be with us and he also very knows very well the right measure we can bear and in lamentation 325 jeremiah says lord the lord is good to those who wait for him the soul who seeks him it is good that one should wait quietly for quietly for the salvation of the lord in this verses jeremiah reflects on the grace of lord's discipline our god is an embodiment of goodness his goodness is realized by those by faith submit to his constructive discipline and wait on him a child of god can always count on the lord's compassion and the abundance of his unfailing love and justice secondly god's discipline is personal the do- the lord's discipline is subjective the experience we may be going through is unique for us the way i am disciplined by god is not the same way my fellow brother or sister is disciplined it is personal and specific to my sin and my maturity in the lord when god disciplines us he engages the suitable agents to bring about his plan in a family god uses our parents to discipline us in a marriage it could be our spouse and in a church god may use our elders or mature believers to discipline us in a work environment or college it could be our boss or a professor for a believer god has his agents to carry out his discipline for his children at each stage and every rung of our life life thirdly god's discipline is restorative the goal of god discipline us is not to destroy us but to restore back to him ezekiel was part of the second exile to babylon which happened in 597 bc before the final destruction of jerusalem happened in 586 bc in ezekiel chapter 11 he sees a vision in that pelatiah one of the leaders of jerusalem dies ezekiel felt that god would completely destroy the people and he asked a question to god in ezekiel chapter 11 verse 30 will you completely destroy the remnant of remnant of israel this question wasn't answered by god then but he found an affirmative answer in chapter 37 where he very sees the vision of dry bone resurrecting letting him know that god plans to restore a remnant we see this comforting thought even in the new testament we are familiar with the verse first corinthians 11 was 32 but when we are judged by the lord we are disciplined so that we may, we may not be condemned along with the world the comfort is that when god is disciplining us he he will he will not let us con, uh, condemn along with the world world but rather it is to restore back to him 
warning there is that there is a damnation for unbelievers who god does not discipline god disciplining his children is inevitable he does it with a purpose and for a season he will be with us and take us through the disciplining process he does it in the right way in the right measure to ensure that we are not harmed we need to trust god's wisdom in handling us the next important truth we can learn from the this section is discernment of suffering is vital when we go through a painful situation only we will be able to discern whether it's god's discipline in our life when someone has go through pain or trials it is wrong for us to judge them and say that it's god's discipline on them it is stemming from our lack of understanding of the various suffering that god allows in our life this was a failure of job's friend when he was going through a terrible trial in his life they passed the judgment on job that his suffering is a result of some evil he has done it was based on a wrong premise that god sends calamities upon wicked people only they turned out to be miserable comforters walter kaiser an old testament scholar summarizes various kinds of suffering allowed by god i felt it apt to give us a broader perspective of suffering some of the suffering he lists are first retributive suffering where people receive punishment for their wicked behavior this is the kind of suffering that the people of jerusalem and juda undergoing in lamentation second disciplinary suffering does not necessarily come come to us because of our rebellion against god and his word instead it is a constructive use of suffering for for us as a for us our growth and the shaping of our character third vicarious suffering it is a suffering that experience on behalf of others in the old testament many of the messengers of god experience suffering and abuse from the very people they want to rescue from the coming destruction the persecution we today is a classic example of that fourth empathetic suffering it is a suffering that someone experiences when the person identifies with the suffering of someone else often the pain and the grief that come uh, come from suffering affect not only the sufferer but also the lives and feelings of those who know and love and watch the sufferer fifth the doxological suffering that occurs when god purposes to glorify himself through the suffering in john chapter 9 when jesus heals a blind man he says it's not the man's sin or his parents sin instead that the works of god might be dis- displayed the, this suffering was for his god's glory sixth revelational suffering it is a, it is a suffering allowed to bring someone into a deeper understanding and closer wo- relationship with god hosea's marriage to the marriage to the adulterous woman gomer was a revelational suffering and finally end time or eschatological suffering it is a unique suffering experience during the tribulation before the lord returns to the earth the suffering god allows have many purposes all pain sands or trials in god's plan are not intended to discipline for our sin but at times it might be a trial to prune us grow us more like his son jesus christ and make us more mature in the lord or it could be because he wants to get glory only an individual will be able to discern and understand it with the help of holy spirit and god's word sometimes it might be a mysterious as well here jeremiah was able to discern that it was a divine punishment for their sin third right expression of sorrow is legitimate this is another impo- important truth we can glean from lamentation 
when jeremiah expressed their grief he was cautious about taking on the responsibility for the misfortune and never to blame it on god even when he acknowledges that god is the one who caused it he consistently upheld the character of god as a just god yet loving and merciful the expression of sorrow never turned out to be a blame on god there are many ex- examples in the bible where expressions of personal or national mourning are mentioned for instance J- joseph and his brother lamenting over their father's death job expressing his grief over his mis- misfortune habakkuk was showing his grief over babylonian oppression expressing and expressing grief and la- uh, sorrow over something unfortunate in our life is not wrong but when we express our humility sorrow one thing we should be mindful of is are we growing bitter with god and others are we blaming god or are we taking responsibility for our actions and sins now coming to the second theme we see in the book of lamentation is the confession the first confession we see see in the book of lamentation is in chapter 1 verse 18 to 20 in lamentation 1 18 say jeremiah says the lord is in the right for i have rebelled against his word jeremiah acknowledges that god is in the right and he is doing what he said he could he would do this shouldn't have come as a shock to anyone back in deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 when moses and the children of israel have come to the promised land god says there are two ways that you can live if you love me with all of your heart soul mind and strength and if you live within the covenant and if you are obedient to my word then i will heap blessings and blessings upon you but if you do not love me with all of your heart and break the covenant and live outside of the covenant and you disobey me then you are going to be under curse and there is going to be punishment for you we can see that jeremiah understand that in lamentation 2:17 the he says there the lord has done what he has purposed he has carried out his word which he commanded long ago god is doing what he said he would the punishment is our fault and god is not to blame he then takes this confession one step further acknowledging that god is absolutely in control another interesting theme in the book of lamentation is that god is absolutely sovereign jeremiah goes out of his way to emphasize that it is god who is punishing it is not like some big country came and conquered them and god was powerless to do anything against it god had earlier pronounced his judgment through jeremiah to send babylonians to punish them for their wickedness it is interesting to note that god calls nebuchadnezzar a pagan king as my servant three times in the book of jeremiah nebuchadnezzar was put in the position of authority by god to carry out his judgment on judah it was clear for jeremiah that the punishment that judah was going through was because god was punishing punishing them for their sins yet god is not to be blamed this is evident in many verses let's look at chapter 3 verse 4 to 6 where it says he has made my flesh and skin waste away he has broken my bones he has besieged my envelope me with bitterness and tribulation he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago there is no question in jeremiah's mind that god is in control and is in is punishing people for their sin just like he promised he would do confession is acknowledging my sin in the light of what god says about it it is to disclose the sin 
and wrong in my life and recognize the truth about myself confession is a heartfelt recognition of what we really are it is important to god because it indicates it indicates that we take our sins seriously confession helps us to acknowledge our sins and realize the need for god's forgiveness but god desires not to stop with a confession he wants us to come to a place of repentance of forsaking and abandoning sin in our life repentance should follow confession these two are so crucial in restoring our relationship and communion with god without repentance we will never be able to be right with god we will never have peace with god and be restored into a rightful relationship with him in lamentation 341 and 42 jeremiah is inviting people to repent and turn back to god it says let us test and examine our ways and return to the lord let us lift up our hearts and hands to god in heaven in the book of daniel at the end of 70 years of exile daniel in his prayer in chapter 9 is explicitly repenting on behalf of the nation matthew 3:8 says produce fruit in keeping with repentance a true christian will always be willing to repent of their sin and wrongdoing it is a mark of a true follower of christ let's look at what it means to repent according to scripture to repent is to feel sorrow the greek word for repentance is metanoia or metanoia it means having remorse guilt and heartfelt sorrow for sin it is sensing sorrow and for grieving god and causing him pain our sin and evil hurts god second meaning could be to repent is to have change in attitude and content and the word for another great word we see in scripture is epistropho and apostropho which means to turn back to turn away from it is a change of attitude and change of behavior so repentance involves feeling sorrowful over hurting god and a deliberate decision to rectify or turn away from sin there are two fundamental ways of repenting attrition and contrition in in both attrition and contrition sorrow for sin is expressed but the nature of the grief expressed differs especially attrition is sorrow for the consequences of sin those who display attrition are sorry for what they what they have done what they have because they have caught they have been caught or they are punished but there is no sorrow for offending offending the most holy god judas is a classic example of one who had attrition but not contrition he was sorry because he knew the betraying that betraying the innocent christ have put him in a divine curse but he felt no sorry for sinning against the holiness of christ and of the father in judas case attrition drove him to suicide instead of confessing his sin to god and pleading for god's mercy and discipline he decided to put the consequence of his sin in his own hands and he hanged himself contrition on the other hand is sorry not merely for the consequences of sin but for acting against the holiness of god contrite individuals recognize that the fundamental problem is their their violation of god's law and they tremble at the thought of holiness but because the work of the holy spirit can only bring about contrition contrite people know god and recognize that he is also sovereign and merciful they do not put the consequence of sin in their own hand but they cast themselves on god's mercy not demanding divine pardon but humbly asking for god's grace they willingly submit to the just consequence of their wickedness 
we see this godly grief model in psalm 51 where david is chiefly sorrow for sinning against god the dividing line between contrition and attrition can be hard to discern it is therefore vital that we know the holiness of god because better we know his holiness the more we will be cognizant that the greatest offense in our sin is against the lord himself when we confess our sin let us be concerned first with how we have broken god's law and have acted against his majestic character apart from attrition and contrition there is another way a christian could respond when they realize their sin that is by showing rebellion denial or justifying their sin many times jesus spoke of the self righteous attitude of the pharisees who constantly found fault with others and recognized no errors in their own life in the old testament god placed the ordered altar inside the entrance of the temple every worshiper could see his neighbor confess their sin and his neighbors could see him confess his sins as well for the israelites this was not some ambiguous admission of guilt before god one time in his life as he confessed his sin time after time he came to the temple and confessed his personal sin confession of sin before god and man is a hallmark of biblical faith earlier we said that confession alone would not do but it should be coupled with repentance and it is crucial then also for us to look at when confession and repentance will lead to restoration confession and repentance that leads to restoration when there is genuine realization of sin in the light of god's holiness and we humble ourselves being brutally honest repenting specific sin while exercising faith and trust in god to live a holy life then our confession and repentance leads to restoration let me highlight few of the elements in the confession and restoration here first we need to be honest it starts with the realization of our sin in the light of god's holiness it's often easy to trivialize or minimize our sin by comparing with others or be influenced by popular culture but we need to we need to understand that for a believer our standards are not based on these fleeting relativistic standards we have a higher absolute standard set by god we know we when we know about it in true sense when we are encountering god and rightly understand his his revealed scripture when confessing our sins it's essential to get brutally honest with ourselves often our self deception comes in the way of confessing our sin all who had encountered with god had the response of realizing their sinfulness we read about isaiah's vision in isaiah 6 verse 5 of isaiah 6 he says woe is me for i am lost i am a man of unclean lips i dwell and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts in luke 5 verse 8 peter says but when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus knees saying depart from me for i am a sinful man o lord we must be honest with ourselves before god secondly we must be humble sometimes it is a pride that stops us stops us from admitting our sin before others and god but god expects humility on our part he says in second chronicles 7:14 if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away turn away from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and heal their land let's ask god that he would break us and enable us to be genuinely humble before him third we need to be specific 
we also need to be specific about our sins. It's easy to make blanket confession. I know of someone who each time confesses saying, forgive me for what I have done knowingly or unknowingly and goes on to repeat the same actions. If a confession is only for us to be guilt-free emotionally and feel good in ourselves, then it's not a confession. Rather, it's a form of narcissism. The problem with such confession is that we are never genuine. We miss being honest and humble before God to call out our specific sin. When we look at Jeremiah's confession, he says, my heart is wrung within me because I have seen, I have been very rebellious. Verse 20 of chapter 1, we read that. Lamentation 4, 13, he says, this was for her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of righteous. Jeremiah is being brutally honest, humble, and calls out specific sins such as rebellion and murder of righteous people. Leviticus 5.5 mentions the guidance given on how one has to respond to sin when he realizes it. It says, when he realizes his guilt in any of this and confesses the sin he has committed. See the definite article used in this verse. Biblical confession is about calling out specific sin, contemplating on how it has offended the holy God and then repenting of it. Fourth, we must exercise faith. Confession makes sense only if we have genuine faith in God, his character, and his promises. We need to have faith in God's character that he is loving, merciful, and faithful. He has also promised us that he will forgive us if we genuinely repent our sin. Is God real in our life? If so, then our confession should be an outflow of that faith in him. Finally, we must trust God. We need to trust in God's grace for living a holy life and not to fall into the sin, same sin again and again. Repentance is not supposed to be a vicious cycle of sinning, repenting, and doing the same sin again. This is not the biblical definition of true repentance. As we have seen earlier, true repentance is about knowing the pain of the holy God whom we have offended and turning away from it. With that understanding, we can never keep sinning. If you look at the stories in the scripture where transformation happened in people's life after they have confessed their sin, we can see that they lived a life of consecration to God. None of them had a life of vicious cycle of sinning because they trusted in God's grace to live a sanctified life. I'm not saying we will be sinless, but we become more and more sensitive towards sin as God sanctifies us and makes us more like his son, Jesus Christ. The third theme we see in this book is faith amid lamentation leads to hope. In chapter 3, something changes drastically about Jeremiah's attitude towards pain, suffering, and lament. In the moment of his deepest despair and as he recalled his bitter affliction, a remarkable transition in his attitude took place. In Lamentation 3, verse uh, 3 verse 21 to 23, we see the prophet's expression of faith. And in the subsequent three verses, we, verse 24 to 26, his hope is seen grounded on the faith that he expressed from verse 21 to 23. Let me read the verse 22 to 24 again for you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is one of the most popular words from Lamentation. And we have songs and hymns based on this as well. First truth we can learn from it is 
faith must be grounded on god's unchanging character jeremiah's hopelessness expressed in the earlier verses turned to hope as he remembered the lord the unbroken mood of despair was displaced by beautiful affirmation of hope in the midst of suffering the basis for renewed hope is god's great love the hebrew word chesed sometimes translated as covenant love or loyal love is a word that the basic meaning is loyalty or faithfulness primarily related to the covenant initiated by god another basis for hope is god's unfailing compassion which are experienced in a fresh and new way every single day amidst chaos and depression a deep faith in trustworthiness of god is revealed jeremiah says great is your faithfulness its meaning in english is connected to truth faith and trustworthiness it was a unique characteristic of the lord contrary to how neighboring peoples viewed their god the jews now understood their god to be faithful to them and there is no greater hope than knowing that god is totally reliable exodus chapter 34 verse 6 to 7 says the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousand generations god had always been faithful the point here is that the people finally re- realized it only after they have reached a point where god's discipline for them is too severe for them to bear often in life we don't realize the faithfulness of god until we have hit a rock bottom lamentation 3 the faithfulness of god is to be interpreted considering his promise to dis- destroy which he has done and his promise to restore restore which he would do jeremiah realized that the restoration was on its was on its way both nationally and individually here in the small section jeremiah recalls three attributes of god that gives him hope a god who shows steadfast love a god who is merciful a god who is faithful god's love is pure his mercies are limitless and fresh every single day he is faithful because he is unfailing second truth we can learn from here is hope spurs from the true faith the second part of this section starting from verse 24 jeremiah reflects on the practical application of the faith he has expressed the testing of faith often comes under trying circumstances and he says in verse 24 lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope in him jeremiah claimed god as his portion in other words he says lord is all i have the expression the lord is my portion takes us back to the narrative of the book of numbers where aaron and his priestly descendants are told that while the rest of the family would receive a portion of the land as inheritance they would not he said god told them i am your portion and your inheritance numbers 18 verse 20 jeremiah chooses to remember the unfailing character of god the hope that he thought had abandoned him forever reappears and he says therefore i have hope the contrast between the end of verse 18 and the last word of last word of verse 21 is astonishing what can he have remembered that lifts a man who says he has lost all hope all he has ever hoped and he can say i have hope it is a remembrance remembrance of god's unfailing character it is a true faith that spurs hope that doesn't fleet away 
Finally, Jeremiah ends that stanza by admonishing to wait upon the Lord. Waiting upon God was an, as important for the old covenant as the new. A believer has a living hope because he trusts in a living God whose promises are as sure as his judgments. As we have seen earlier, God's discipline is for a time. We believers are called to wait, persevere, and fulfill the purpose of his discipline. In conclusion, today we have broadly tried to look at the different themes running through the book of Lamentation. We learned that God's discipline is inevitable and it is often painful, but it, it is for a season. God promises that he will be th with us through it and he will restore back to him if we yield to his discipline. We need to realize the purpose of his discipline and truly confess and repent of our sin, turn away from our sinful ways. During the times of sorrow, our steadfast anchor of faith is the unchanging character of God. We have a God who is loving, merciful, and faithful through the generations. True faith will lead us to a hope that propels us to live our Christian life through pain and suffering. Before I close, let me urge you, brothers and sisters who are hearing me today, if you are in a sin, please do not continue in it and offend God. Confess and repent of it and be restored back to God. The Lord is waiting with arms open to receive you. Do not fool yourself and harden your heart. Scripture is clear that no sin will go unpunished. But the same scripture, scripture tells us that there is complete healing and restoration at the cross of Christ. May the Lord help us to be honest and humble before him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful time of worship you've given us and to learn from your word. Thank you for the truth you taught us from your word and the book of Lamentations, Lord. Lord, we learned that your discipline is inevitable in our life, but we know that it is for a season and it is for a purpose. And you will be with us as you discipline us, Lord. Help us to discern disciplining process in our life and yield to that. Lord, if there is any sin in us, if there is anything which we are habitually doing, Lord, help us to confess and repent of that and call that out and help us to know that how it offends you, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to our sins and know that you are a God who is faithful, merciful, and loving, Lord. Thank you for the truths you have taught us. Help us to have a hope in you based on the faith which you have which given through your word. Lord, help us to strengthen our faith. We submit to each of us in your mighty hands. Pray that we, we will come just as we are and yielding to your disciplining process, Lord. Thank you for everything you have done and doing in our life. Come in the rest of the day and the meetings in your hands. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.